So, we are in a study of the book of Colossians, and last week we had this text which instructed us that there are some things that if we're going to walk with Jesus, we have to put off. And in fact, it told us we had to put them to death. So we need to put those things away. They're not compatible with walking with Jesus if you're going to have these things in your life. And so we recognize that part of walking with Jesus is indeed learning to put away some things, some old habits, some old patterns, some old practices, that the follower of Jesus is committed to doing that. Thankfully, uh, we weren't just told what it, Paul doesn't just tell us what it is that we need to take off or put to death in our lives, but we're going to come to a text now this week where he's going to instruct us what we should put on, which is good, right? That we're told not just what we shouldn't be, but what we should be. Is that right, church? Here's what you should be. Here's what I want you to put on. And as I was thinking about this text this week, I, I got to think about some of the great speeches that have been given, some of the great orators or, or orations that have been given throughout history. How many of you are students of history? You like history? Yeah, awesome. Fantastic. First service, there were like three people that raised their hands. It just made me so sad. Right, so there's some great, I mean, there are some great historical orations. I thought of Alexander the Great and uh, his speech to his soldiers as he was trying to convince them that they had conquered most of the known world at that point, but he wanted them to go into India, right? And he, he concluded this great oration with essentially, uh, those of you who choose to stay will be the envy of those who choose to go, which is a great way to motivate folks, right? And so uh, there are speeches like uh, Demosthenes in ancient Greece or uh, Pericles also in ancient Greece. They, these great historical orations, if you've ever studied any of them, they're, they're so fascinating. The most powerful among them, I would argue, are those where the speaker is able to paint a picture with their words so that what you are being won over by is not necessarily just the logic of what they're saying, but by the picture they're painting for you. Have you heard someone paint a picture like that, which is so compelling? Probably the most famous and best ver uh, example in American history, right ahead of, I would say, uh, Lincoln's second inaugural address, which is really rich, is probably Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. You know, because he paints the picture so well for us. He doesn't just win us with the logic uh, or the, the lack of logic that is behind racism, right? He paints a picture for us when he says, I have a dream that one day little black boys and little black girls and little white boys and little white girls underneath the Alabama sun will join hands and play together. And you can see that, can't you? when he paints that picture. Or he says, he paints the picture early in, in the I Have a Dream speech where he says the American public or the, the American experiment, the Constitution has made a promise to black men and women that it is not fulfilled and it, it, has, it has given us a check which we have returned marked insufficient funds. Right, you picture the problem when you hear those words. Right, and, and, and it goes on. It gives these great examples, these great word pictures, which enable you to understand a vision of reality that, that he wants you to understand and a vision of the future that could be if we would understand the picture he paints for us. Another great example is uh, Winston Churchill's three speeches given at, during the Battle of France in 1940. Between May and June, the German army had begun to invade France. And in the course of a month, they essentially conquered all of France and had made their way into Paris. And on uh, June 14th, Churchill gave the last of his three speeches meant to embolden his people. And it was the finest hour speech. Are you all familiar with the finest hour speech? Oh, it's, listen to the way he paints this picture uh, for his people. He says, what General Wigan called the Battle of France is over. I expect that the Battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. 
the whole fury and the might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. There's a beautiful picture, isn't there? But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age, made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. When someone paints a picture for you, right? When someone paints a picture for you of the future, of the way things can be, of the way things should be, it's compelling, isn't it? It draws you in. It makes you realize there is something worth even giving your life for. The other thing that is the mark of these great orations is that they don't just paint a picture of an individual life. They paint a picture of what a community could be together. They paint a picture of what it looks like when the British people stand together, united against an evil foe, down to the last man, saying, we will not give up this island. We will not give up the fight. If you know Churchill's other, one of his other speeches, he says, we will fight on the beaches. We will fight on land. We will fight in the air. And he goes on to describe that we will fight until we cannot stand because we will never surrender to this foe. When someone paints a picture of life together for a people, and they paint it so well and so eloquently, it draws us in and it draws us up to what life can be, what it should be. The reason I tell you that story is because as we encounter the text that we're gonna look at today, you may at first glance see it as a list of character attributes that you should acquire. So you're gonna see words like humility, you're gonna see words like patience, you're gonna see things like forgiveness, and those are beautiful character traits to possess. But what I want you to understand is that Paul is doing something far greater and far more important than saying that you as an individual should put on these character traits. What he's trying to do is paint a picture for us of what it looks like when the church is the church. When the people of God live together in relationship because they're so in love with and so astounded by who Jesus is and what he's done, right? As he said in verse 11, when Christ is all and in all, right? When Christ, this is what a group of people to whom Christ is all, this is what it looks like when they live together. And I want you to note that he's not just giving character traits that if I can say, well, I haven't been a jerk to that person or I haven't actively sought to harm them, then I fulfilled the requirements given to me by this text. Rather, what I want you to understand is Paul is painting a picture of what it would look like when a local church, a group of people come together and live in such a way that they are so in love with Jesus that they love one another deeply and well. And he's saying, this is what the church is meant to be. This is what she is meant to be. This is what Christ died for. 
And here's the thing I want to propose to you. You cannot understand or fulfill the purpose of your life, the reason you were placed here on the planet by God. You cannot understand it, nor can you accomplish it until you have a high vision of what it means to be a part of a local church. Until you esteem that to be a high and good cause for your life, to say, I am part of a local following, uh, a local group of followers of Jesus, until you understand how pivotal and paramount that is meant to be in your life, the way you live in a relationship with the people sitting all around you right now, that until you understand that, you cannot walk in what God has called you to do or to be. That is absolutely pinnacle for you to understand, not just those of us who are pastors to have a high vision of the local church, but for you as a member of the local church to have a high vision of it and a high view of it. I wonder, I wondered as I prepared this week, and I thought, I wonder how many of us have ever asked the question, have ever said to ourselves, what is my vision of the local church? What is it that I believe the church should be and how do I participate in it becoming that thing? What I would offer you, to, you today is that you should have an answer to that question. You should be able to say, I have a high vision of the local church. Not the smallest reason for which is the fact that, as I said, I, I don't think you can be what it is you were meant to be without the local, without having that high vision of the local church. We saw a great example of that a couple of weeks ago when we commissioned two of our very own, Daniel and Faith Mauger, to go to North Africa to live uh, among a people group where they are trying to plant local churches, where they're trying to work alongside to see uh, people, particularly from a Muslim background, come to faith in Jesus and grow. And the reason it was such a beautiful, our commissioning of them was such a beautiful example and demonstration of this high vision of the local churches, one, is that Daniel and Faith have a vision of their lives which revolves around the local church. And so they didn't want to go unless we sent them, unless they were commissioned by their family, unless we said, we are behind you, we are for you, we will guard you in prayer, we will undergird you with resources, we will do everything in our power to see you fulfill the mission God has placed upon your life. And with that backing, they said, yes, our church is behind us, we can go, because they are called to a hard thing and a hard place, and they need their church behind them. But it's not just a high vision of the local church that sends them, it's a high vision of the local church to which they are going to say there is a group, a small group of believers in this corner of the world that need to be encouraged and edified and cared for and worked with and come alongside and we go to give our lives for the sake, not just of a grand idea of a global mission, we go to give our lives to a local community of faith and we will give ourselves to see it risen up and, and uh, emboldened and strengthened. Do you see what I'm getting at? You need to know, followers of Jesus, you need to know God is going to call you to do hard things. He's gonna call you to do hard things. It might be like Daniel and Faith. He may be calling you to a place on the earth where you will not see your family very often. He may be calling you to a place where there will be very little Christian fellowship around you. That may be the hard thing he's calling you to. It may be the hard thing of reconciling a relationship that's been broken for years. It may be the hard thing of putting away and putting to death that sin pattern and struggle that you've had in your life for so long. But God is, make no mistake about it, going to call you to do hard things for him. Do you know that? And you cannot do those hard things until you have a high vision of the local church. 
One, because you need the local church to both compel you and to undergird you. You need the relationship of the people sitting right next to you right now if you are going to do the hard things that God has called you to do. Some of you are probably called to do what I'm doing right now, which is to be a pastor. Some of you are called to lead in the church as a, as a part of your occupation. Young men, young women, I have you in mind in particular. And the thing I want you to know and the thing I want you to understand is you must cultivate a vision for the local church that is not about standing on a platform talking to a lot of people. The point is not to gather a crowd or have a following. You must have a vision that is bigger and grander than that. And it must be a vision that is a vision of the local church being exactly who God made her to be. The beauty of the local church, when she is filled with forgiveness and compassion and love and patience, all the things that we're about to see in this book, you must have a vision that is far greater than simply having an audience. You need a vision of the local church in action, on mission, and you must be willing to give your life in sacrifice to see her become what it is she is meant to be. And until you have that vision, until you have a, a gloriously grand, ambitious, audacious vision for what the local church can be, until you have that, you cannot fulfill your calling. So look at, look at with me at this picture that Paul is gonna paint for us now, far more than just a set of attributes that we should possess. No, the way we should relate to one another and love one another. Listen to what he says, Colossians chapter three, beginning in verse 12, where it says this, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So the question in front of us today is, can you see what the local church is meant to be? Can you see it? I just want to ponder it with you a little bit. I want to see if we can't see the picture that Paul is painting for us of what the local church is meant to be. And I see a few things here that I think are worth examining. So let's, let's look at those together. If you grab the sermon notes, you'll see that there's a handful of them. So we'll comment on each briefly. So what do you see when you think of the future? And let's, let's just make it very rooted in our context. What do you see when you think about the future of our church? Our church. What do you see when you think about the future of our church? If we were to live in accordance with these commands, not, not suggestions, by the way, commands. The first thing I see is that we would be a church where love is not a feeling but a resolution. Where love is not a feeling but a resolution. Let me tell you what I mean by that. We gotta deal first with verse 14 in this text because look at what he says in verse 14. He says, above all these, 
put on love. So in other words, above humility and above patience and above kindness, right? Put on love, and he says, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now remember, the language of putting off certain things and putting on certain things is the language of of like getting dressed, of putting on clothes. And he's saying, I want you to wear these character traits. I want you to wear them so that you're marked by them. And then here, when he's saying, put on love, essentially put love on almost like an overcoat that goes over all the other things, and then it it, it loops them together. It binds them together. They work well because love is present. Now, this begs a very important question. And if you're reading along and kind of trying to examine and get your mind into, well, what is he telling me to do here? It probably, this question probably occurs to you because here it is, right? Well, what is love? What does it mean to put on love if love is not essentially being patient, being kind, being humble, right? I've read all those traits, and then when it says put on love in addition to those or above those, I think to myself, but aren't those things essentially a description of what love is? So what is love that it is, if it's not those things? In fact, 1 Corinthians 13, same author, Paul, says to us, love is what, church, if you know it, patient. And love is kind, and it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking. So we just heard in 1 Corinthians 13 that essentially in some way those things very much are the definition of love. The love is those things. But why can Paul say then here in Colossians chapter 3 that we should, essentially he's not saying love is those things, so do them. He's saying put on love in addition to or above those things. Well, the the only thing that makes sense to me is I examine that and say, well, okay, if he said love is patient, love is kind, doesn't mean then what he must be saying when he says put on love in addition to those things is put on the commitment of the will to behave in these ways towards one another. So that when I say put on love, what I'm saying is put on a commitment, a decision in advance of any difficult circumstance or any uh, relationship that you have. Put on a decision that says, I will commit myself to behave in such a way that I am, what? Patient and humble and kind towards those in my family of faith. I wonder how many of us have ever said to ourselves, As I come into this church, and this is my church, I commit myself to I commit myself to love the people of my church, no matter what. I commit my will to love the people of my church. Some of them are annoying, some of them are opinionated, some of them are hard to love. And I commit myself to love them. Do you see how important that is? That's the first thing Paul is telling us. When he says, above all these, put on love. It will bind them all together, right? One of the things you're gonna notice as we go through this, and this is important to remember, church, is that you cannot know if you have done any of the things that you've been commanded to do here until you live life in the local church. You can't say, I am loving, I am humble, I am kind by sitting in your home alone all the time. You can be kind in theory. You can be patient in theory. Look, you don't know if you're patient until somebody tries your patience. You don't know if you're forgiving until someone sins against you. And if you withhold relationship from the people of your church, you'll never know if you actually are forgiving or if you aren't. You can be holy or godly in theory, but you can't be holy or godly in practice. Let me just invite you, come and be holy and godly in practice. It's way better, way harder, 
but way more worthwhile. So the first thing we see is that this church is a church where if it lived out this reality, it would say, I commit, it would be filled with people. Can you see it? Who said, I commit myself to love you. Regardless of how hard it is, I commit myself to do it. The second thing we see is that we would be a church where hurting people never hurt alone. We're hurting people never hurt alone. The first uh, character trait that gets listed, he says, put on then, and the first one is what, church? Compassion. Compassion. Well, what is compassion? Compassion isn't just being nice. Compassion is you hurt with the hurting. That's what compassion is. Compassion is not usually something we think about being offered to someone when they're feeling great and happy. They're not in need of compassion. Who is in need of compassion? The hurting person. And so when the first thing Paul says is, put on compassion, what he's saying is, don't let yourself be a church where anyone would ever hurt and no one would know it. That we would be a church. Can you see this? What would it be like if every time somebody hurt in our church, there was somebody next to them? who was willing to enter that hurt with them, not keep them at a distance, but who was willing to move towards them, not away from them. Who was willing to say, I know you're hurting. And that doesn't mean I have answers. That doesn't mean I can fix it. That doesn't mean I can make it all better. What it does mean is I will go with you through the hurt. I will walk beside you. Can you imagine a church where everybody had a 2 a.m. friend? Everybody had someone who doesn't matter what time of day or night, you pick up the phone, you say, I am in desperate need of a friend. And they would say, I'll be right there. I'll be right there. Probably with a good gallon ice cream maybe or something, you know, just to make it all better. Just to be present with one another. So when Paul says, put on compassion, church, what he is saying is be a church where no one ever hurts alone. Third thing that we see, it's the next he says, put on compassion. Then he says, kindness. And I, I want to go to the next one where he says, humility. Put on humility. Well, what does it look like when a church expresses humility? I, I think it looks like this. I think it's a church where we seek to understand before seeking to be understood. Where we seek to understand one another before seeking to be understood by one another. And what that means is this. It means a church where there's a lot more listening and a lot more question asking and a lot less expressing of opinions. Could you imagine how awesome it would be is if you, if you just expressed your thoughts, your thinking on something, and instead of everybody uh, filling you with their opinions about your situation, they just asked you more questions to help, help you unpack it and think it through. Wouldn't that be, you'd want to talk more to people, wouldn't you? How many of you have, don't raise your hand, but how many of you have ever just you've had a deep need to connect over something you're feeling or dealing with or trying to, trying to understand how to navigate and you just need to be listened to and, and the answer is you get five people telling you five different opinions about what you should do about that rather than saying, wow, tell me more about it. Like how did, how did you get there? What did that, what does that feel like? That's a great question by the way. What does that feel like as you're trying to navigate that? What's been confusing about that? What do, you, what do you think you need? Those kinds of questions are really valuable questions. I'm not saying we don't ever express opinions, but I'm telling you, a church that's humble is a church that is not quick to think that it has all the answers for someone else, and I will share them with you now because I have a wonderful plan for your life. But one that trusts the Spirit, the Spirit of God to be our teacher and our instructor. One that says, 
I may not have the answer to this, but I'll sure listen to you and maybe I could ask some questions that would help you process it, right? We had a great, great example that we just finished training arenas, which are really aimed at helping us just grapple with the gospel and apply it then to all these aspects of our life and, and of our culture. And um, Scott Hancock led us through one called a theology, developing a theology of race and justice. You wanna talk about a touchy subject, that's a touchy subject, right? And Scott led it so well. All the reports out of the class that I heard were so brilliant because Scott, who is an expert on this subject, uh, you know, you're gonna get different opinions anytime you engage this subject matter. I mean, you're just gonna have people come from all manner of backgrounds and all different opinions. And of course that happened in class. And do you know what Scott did again and again throughout the class? Who, again, a guy who has lived this out, who is an expert on developing a theology of race and justice, knows the Bible backwards and forwards, is such a godly man. Do you know what his response was every time someone pushed on his ideas or thoughts that he would present in the class? It was to say, you know, that's an interesting idea. Tell me more about that. Let me understand what you're saying. I, help, me, help me unpack that further. Or I can totally see where you're coming from. Uh, you know, tell me a little bit more about your background, your story. Or let me connect with you after class because I'd love to hear more about that. It wasn't, you know what, no, I'm right, you're wrong, you need to stop talking. It was that humility of character within the life of the body that said, oh yeah, tell me, tell me more about where you're coming from. I want to understand your thinking. I want to understand your perspective on this matter. Because I know I have a perspective, but I want to hear yours that's brilliant, right? We need more of Scott Hancock bleeding through the rest of us. I need more Scott Hancock bleeding through me. Let me just say that, right? That's fantastic. The next thing that we see here uh, is that a church that lives this vision is a church where people of all spiritual maturities are warmly embraced. Look at what he says when he says, put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and then the next term is, and patience, and patience. Now, I love that, and here's why I say that when he talks about what does it mean to put on patience, that I'm essentially saying, well, it looks like a, people, we're a church where all, people of all spiritual maturities are warmly embraced. It's because essentially this, when do you need to express patience? Usually when someone is slipping up or making a mistake or not quite getting it right. Right When they're not behaving in a mature manner, perhaps. They're behaving in an immature manner. And you're, you're in need of having patience with that person. Right? And every parent said, yes, exactly. Right? Here's a mistake churches make all the time. They act as if everyone knows their Bible backwards and forwards. They act as if everyone should have all their stuff well in line. And like that they shouldn't be making mistakes or shouldn't be immature in certain ways that they are immature. But a church that gets this gets that this is gonna be a community, always going to be a community where some people are one day in Jesus and some people are 70 years in Jesus. And the person who's one day in Jesus does not look like the person who is 70 years in Jesus. Let's hope not because the person who's 70 years in Jesus didn't grow very much if that's the case. You, you get what I'm saying? And so this is what Paul is saying is like, a church that's patient, like if we're patient with one another, what that looks like is this constant expectation that we're all gonna be in different places on this journey to spiritual maturity. Doesn't mean it's okay that we stay where we are. Doesn't mean, remember Colossians 1.28, what was Paul's goal? That everyone be presented mature in Christ. That's, that should be the goal for every single one of us. We want to move towards maturity in Christ. But the way that happens is when we live with one another with patience, when we aren't acting very mature in Christ. In fact, when we're acting very immature, but we say, hey, 
I've been there. I've been immature, and someone was patient with me. Let me be patient with you. You follow me, church? That's, that's part of the vision Paul is painting here, is that there would be this just deep sense of patience with one another. When we, and, and let's be honest, it, we can frustrate one another. We can be difficult. I love, by the way, that in this text, we're not going to talk about it too much, but where he says, bear with one another. Bear with one another. That idea, by the way, assumes that we are going to annoy each other sometimes. Bearing with is not like, I love you so much, you're so much fun to be around. If you're loving somebody and enjoying them, if you're enjoying someone, you're not bearing, you're not having to bear with them. When you're bearing with someone is when they are annoying the fire out of you. And you say, I will bear with you. I will, I will bear with you in this. I'm not gonna cut and run. I'm not gonna cut relationship from you. I'm not gonna be like, I just can't stand to be around that. You just, you're gonna bear with one another. You're gonna bear with one another. You're gonna be patient with one another. Next thing that we see is around this idea of forgiveness. Look at what he says. He says, bearing with one another, verse 13, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So notice the gospel motivation there in forgiveness where he says, you look to the fact that you've been forgiven a billion dollar debt by Jesus. How could you not forgive someone who owes you 10 bucks? I mean, when you really get that, you realize I can never withhold forgiveness. Like there's never a time where I can withhold forgiveness. I've been forgiven so much. How could I fail to forgive? And so he says, remember that. Remember the forgiveness you've received and therefore forgive one another. Don't just, don't just bear with one another. Forgive one another. So what would that look like? Here's what I think it would look like. It would look like it would create a church where no one wanted to hide their sin anymore. Now, I say no one wanted to hide their sin anymore because here's the deal. Uh, learning to confess, I was wrong, I sinned against you, please forgive me, that is hard. It's really hard to learn to do that. And it's a discipline quite often to say, I will do this, I will keep a short record with people. If I've sinned against them, I'll go to them. I will ask for their forgiveness. That is very hard to do. But can you imagine a church where every time someone did that, the response was, of course I forgive you. And you were received with a warm hug and a welcome back. Where we didn't say, I'm gonna hold a grudge and keep a distance between me and you. What if there were a body of people who did that constantly, all the time? What would it do? It would, it would cause the bitterness of having, the bitter taste of having to confess our sins and admit that we sinned, how difficult that is. It would replace it with the sweet taste of forgiveness, knowing that we were gonna receive it. If you knew that forgiveness would never be withheld anytime you asked for it, wouldn't it make you want to ask for forgiveness much more than you do now? I think so. So just imagine if we did that. Just imagine if anyone you'd ever said a foul word about here, anyone you'd ever gotten sideways with because you just misunderstood one another or perhaps you did something you shouldn't have done, imagine being able to go to them, directly to them, and saying, I've sinned against you. I need to ask your forgiveness. And their response would be, I love you. And yes, I forgive you. And not in a cursory kind of a way, but like a, no, come back into my life sort of a way. <clears throat> I saw an illustration of this. My son, who is three, uh, we went to a friend's house uh, and they were really awesome. They were really kind. They uh, got us some lunch and part of that lunch was macaroni salad. Have y'all had macaroni salad? It's uh, made with mayonnaise, which is awful and nasty. 
And my son thought he was getting mac and cheese. Now, when you think you're getting mac and cheese and you're three years old and you really like mac and cheese, but you're getting macaroni salad and mayonnaise, what is your response? My son's response was to cry and scream for five minutes because he couldn't get the taste of the macaroni salad out of his mouth. He's like, get it out, get it out, just over and over, get it out. And I'm trying to give him like water and he's like, no, and he's spitting water everywhere. It's like a fountain in the, in the kitchen, you know. And he's so distraught and so finally like, we're scraping his tongue, like we're getting it off, like get the macaroni salad fully off out of his mouth. If I had been smart, you know what I would have done? Have you ever had those dark chocolate sea salt covered caramels? Have you ever had those? They're like bliss in your hand and they're so good, right? And instead of scraping his tongue or whatever it was that I did, right? What I should have done was I should have I put one of those in his mouth and the taste, the bitter taste would have been replaced with the sweet taste. And that's exactly what we're talking about here. We have to get the bitter taste of having to ask for forgiveness when we sin against one another, the macaroni salad, if you will. We have to get it out of our mouths. And the way to get it out of our mouths is when we become so forgiving and so loving that when we ask for forgiveness and we receive, the receipt of forgiveness is the dark chocolate sea salt covered caramel. Just remember that when you forgive someone, maybe just make a habit of having some of those around and just if you forgive someone, just give them one. Here you go. Absolutely, and feel free to leave some in my office for me next week, all right? Next thing that we see in the text. Next thing that we see in the text. The church like this is a church where no one gossips. It's a church where no one gossips. What do you think he means in verse 15 when he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ, you gotta think about that phrase for a minute, don't you? Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. He's not talking about the fact that you have peace with God and therefore you should have a a peaceful disposition because you know you have peace with God. That's certainly biblically true, yes. But when he's saying let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, what he's saying is I want the knowledge of the fact that that God has given you peace with him through Christ. Therefore now you have peace with one another through Christ, and I want that to rule the way you act towards one another. Now, that word rule literally means let it be the umpire. That's what it means, let it be the umpire. In other words, the idea is anytime I think about how I should behave towards those around me, I think about the fact that the peace I have with them because of the peace I have with him should dictate what I do right now. It should be the umpire that tells me what is the right call and what is the wrong call, right? Some of you are gonna go home and watch football this afternoon, yes? The umpire is gonna make a few decisions, aren't they? The umpire is gonna say, no, it's a flag. No, it's not a flag. That's roughing the passer. It's not roughing the passer. It's passing interference. It's not passing interference, whatever, right? And you're gonna yell at the screen. You're gonna know you're wrong, right? The umpire of peace, the peace of Christ, is the umpire in your heart and he is never wrong, It is always right to let the peace of Christ be the umpire of your decisions towards one another. That's what Paul is saying here. Now, just imagine if that were true. If you lived as if with every person in your local church, you said, I'm at peace with you. My, My decisions towards you are supposed to be dictated by the peace that we have with one another. Not animosity, not strife, 
peace. My decisions are to be dictated by that. Would there ever be a word of gossip spoken in a church? No. No one would ever go talk about someone to someone other than that someone. That was a confusing sentence. Stop talking to other people about someone else. Stop it. You're not supposed to do it because the peace of Christ is supposed to rule, umpire your hearts. And when it does, gossip dies because you go to the person. You don't go to someone else to tell them how awful that person has been. You go to them and you say, hey, this hurt. Can we talk about it? Just imagine a church where there was no gossip. When you hear people gossiping or when you gossip, because we've all been guilty of it. You ever been in a room of people who gossip and then left? What were you pretty sure happened the second you walked out of that room? I started talking about you immediately. And what does that create in a, in a group of people? What does that create? Mistrust, doubt, fear, insecurity. All great things. But what about when no one gossips? What about when gossip begins and someone says, you know what? No, we, we, don't need to, we don't need to speak about that person. They're not here. That doesn't honor them. It doesn't honor the Lord. What about when that exists in a church? What kind of atmosphere, what kind of culture is created by that? Probably one of security, trust, love, maybe humility, kindness, patience. Yes, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Last thing that we'll point out here is that it's a church where everyone gives gospel-centered advice. Look at, the, uh, look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing. So teaching, giving good instruction about what you should do, admonishing what you shouldn't do, say correction. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I love that because it reminds me that when we sing together, we're instructing one another. Isn't that cool? That when we sing the praises of God and proclaim the gospel in our worship together, we're actually instructing one another about what we should believe and how we should think and how we should feel towards Christ, towards God, and towards one another. That's, that's brilliant. I mean, that's just brilliant. The thing that he's saying there, though, when he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, he's not referring there to the Bible, although the Bible does contain the word of Christ. Usually the phrase when he's referring to the Bible is the word of God. But he's saying, let the word of Christ, which in other words is the message of the gospel, the message that Christ was crucified and resurrected and that through faith in him you can have life. You can be reconciled to God. This is the truth upon which all of our lives are to be dictated. So when he says, let that word, the message of the gospel, let it dwell in you richly, what he's saying is, let it dictate everything for you. Always put everything through the lens of the gospel. Let, let your finances, let your time, let your relationships, let everything and the way you relate to one another, let it all be subsumed under this heading of the truth of the gospel. Always consider it. That, that's what he's getting at. Now, just imagine a church where every single person, right, even as they're growing towards maturity from day one all the way to year 70, Imagine a church where every single person was trying to put their lives through the lens of the gospel. That would be a church filled with really wise people, wouldn't it? Which is why he says, instruct one another. He doesn't say, get the pastor and let him tell you what to do. He doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't say, you guys write me a letter. I'll kind of give you instruction when you need it. I'll tell you what to do. 
He says, no, surround one another with instruction. How great would it be if just you could just pluck any person out of the hallway and go, hey, I need help processing a decision. Come here. And what you would get would be gospel-saturated truth so that no one was led astray by false philosophies, so that no one was led astray by things, by, by ideas contrary to the Scripture, contrary to the message of Christ. What would it be like if we instructed one another with all wisdom because we were a gospel-saturated in our minds and our hearts community? How good would it be? The last question to answer before we come and take communion, the last question to answer is how? <laughs> how? Right? How do we that put on these things? Okay, that's hard. The answer is at the very beginning in verse 12. Put on then as what? As God's chosen, holy, I mean set apart, and beloved children. Put on these things. You want to know how to be these things? You need to know and believe in your deepest heart. You need to believe that God chose you. You didn't choose him. You need to believe that you have been set apart for his purposes and his pleasure and you are no longer of the world. The world is not for you anymore. You don't belong to the world. You belong to him. You are for him. That's what your life exists for. And you are loved. More love than you could ever dare imagine or hope. You are loved. You are his. That's what he means. That's why he begins this whole vision of the church and what she could be with put, it, put on then as the ones who are chosen, as the ones who are holy, as the ones who are loved. When you know those three things deep within yourself, you begin to put on humility, kindness, patience. They all begin to flow out of you because you know, you know that God has chosen you. You know that he loves you. You know that you're set apart for him.